Good morning, church. So we are on the last lap of sorts. Um, we are going to be going through um, Jonah chapter 3 and 4. We have already been through chapter 1 and 2. Um, in chapter 1 and 2, we've seen Jonah disobey God by going in the completely opposite direction than the one God ordained for him and the furthest possible destination as well. Um, he is prayerless, disconnected, and even suicidal. That was in chapter 1. When he is swallowed by the large fish, even in the belly of the large fish, we see him blame shifting on God, onto God. But then he catches sight of Jesus and is able to repent and choose to change course to go to Nineveh and to proclaim the message that God has for them to hear from him. So now we turn to Jonah chapter 3. And we read from verse 1. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So Jonah obeys his calling the second time around and heads to the city of Nineveh. The Bible says Nineveh was very large and it would take three days, a three-day journey to go through it possibly in reference to Jonah being able to reach everyone in the city of Nineveh. But Jonah began on the first day by proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. This is probably the shortest sermon in history and the one with an amazingly immediate impact. The Bible says the Ninevites believed God from a one-line sermon, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth and humbled themselves. This is amazing. As Jonah began to preach, the impact was just completely immediate. We need to find Jonah and ask him his secret. Just kidding, right? It just shows the power of the word to bring about God's impact. As verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. It didn't say Jonah, they believed God. And I bet the fear of the threat had a lot to do with it as well. We get some further insight into how the fast is proclaimed in verse 6. Jonah's warning reaches the king. That phrasing alone, it, it reaches the king, suggests to me it was not Jonah who delivered it, but probably one of the king's servants. 
and his response his response is just incredible for for a leader he leads from the front he got off his throne took off his royal robes put on sackcloth and sat in the dust he he proclaims a fast no food or drink for human and animals they should pray call urgently on god prostrate themselves take off their fine clothes and put on the sackcloth give up their evil ways inclusive of the violence for which the Ninevites and the Assyrians were developing a growing reputation. The king is also very realistic. In spite of all these efforts, right, he declared a 40-day fast. He knows that he doesn't know how God is going to respond, but he's leaning on one of God's characteristics, his compassion, to lead him, God that is, away from his fierce anger. You know the old saying, as goes the leader, so goes the people. Leadership is so important. This leader is so humble, leads by example, and comes down to the lowest point he can before God's compassion. God notices his genuine contrition and relents from the destruction he has threatened. When I think about leaders like that, immediately um, the person that came to mind was Nelson Mandela. Um, the former president of South Africa, now deceased, a leader of the highest order, who led a country out of the apartheid era and an era of such institutionalized racism against black South Africans. His transformation into that leader, however, can be attributed to his 27-year incarceration on Robben Island. Here's a quote from the LA Times, December 7, 2013. He had gone into prison an angry rebel who believed that violent revolution was the only answer. After his release, the firebrand rhetoric was gone, to the disappointment of some. Rather than the stirring oratory of yesteryear, his speeches were calm and pacifying, always calling for reconciliation and unity. At the negotiating table, he persuaded whites to surrender power. He averted a tribal and civil war that many felt certain was inevitable and managed to unite South Africans under his banner of non-racial democracy. Mandela never forgot the good prison guards and police or the bad. Years later, he and fellow prisoner Ahmed Kathrada discussed the idea of inviting wardens and some members of the apartheid security over for lunch. They even talked of inviting one of the worst who had severely tortured some of the ANC activists before they went to prison. Robin Island left him damaged, but without the years of self-examination and meditation, seeing positive things in his darkest hours, Mandela might never have become such a remarkable leader after he walked free. At least, if for nothing else, he wrote in a 1975 letter to his wife, the cell gives you the opportunity to look daily into your entire conduct, to overcome the bad and develop whatever is good in you. Never forget that a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. When I looked at chapter 3 in Jonah, I saw all of the efforts the Ninevites were making to repent their brokenness and humility, their prayer, their intuitive appeal to God's compassion, and yet a deep surrender that was all up to God. Their desperate attempts 
could only signal to God their desire to change. It would be his gift to forgive them and grant them the opportunity to change. Many of you may be feeling like your sin is insurmountable. But the drastic change the Ninevites experienced in such a short time is testimony to a heart that is earnest, deeply desiring to make things right before a holy God. I hope you are willing to look to him. I hope I am willing to look to him. To cry out to him and to surrender to him everything so that you and I can be saved. Repentance is a continuous process. I hope we can receive his mercy to stave off the reality of an eventual accounting once we have completely submitted to him. Now this may take one day, it may take three days, it may take 40 days, it may take one year, it may take three years, it may take 40 years. As long as there is life, you have the opportunity, but do not procrastinate. Be urgent. Who knows how much time you and I have? Be the leader in your own life. I'm sure there are many who are looking on and whom you can be an inspiration to for change in your circle of influence. My second point is prejudicial rage. Is prejudicial rage justified? Reading from chapter 4 and verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? This would be hilarious if it wasn't so serious. Jonah is praying to God as if God is a child, almost raking God over the coals for having compassion on our repentant people. And here we are again with the take my life scenarios. Why is Jonah so angry? Why is he so emotional? In Psalm 83, it speaks of a prayer by Asaph pleading for God's justice against the nation surrounding Israel because they have all conspired together as one against Israel, even Assyria, who is so by distance alone, so far away. They have all conspired together, right, to bring down Israel. In 2 Kings 14, we had an encounter with Jonah. Jonah prophesied to Israel that in spite of their continued sinfulness, because they had not turned away from the sins of Jeroboam the first, God would still deliver them and restore their boundaries because he saw their suffering. Jonah's anger and resentment towards these nations is justified in a sense. They are being abused. But he conveniently forgets that the Israelites themselves are an unrepentant people and yet God had delivered them. Jonah is so resentful and angry that he rather God destroys 120,000 people and animals to favor his prejudicial sense of justice. And if God can't destroy them, then take his life. He is so blinded by his own hate 
he can't see God's love and compassion, however undeserving, to both the Jews and the Ninevites. God still lavishes it on them. In the book Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, it examines the judicial documents, the witness testimonies, and court transcripts um, to get some insight into the conviction of the Reserve Police Battalion 101. This was part of the, the Nazi SS. They were a group of ordinary working-class Germans, men with wives, families, children, etc. Children, etc. And it tries to figure out the book how they, ordinary men, could have brought themselves to obey orders that resulted in the slaughtering of at least at least 38,000 Jews in occupied Poland. This from one police unit. In chapter 1, we see how the commanding officer uses motivations that will stir the men's racist resentment in order to initiate them into the killing of hundreds of women, children, and the elderly while enslaving the men into prison war camps. This is the first time they went out to do something like this. So I read from chapter 1. And the title of the chapter is One Morning in Josephau. In the very early hours of July 13, 1942, the men of Reserve Police Battalion 101 were roused from their bunks in the large brick school building that served as their barracks in the Polish town of Bilgoraj. They were middle-aged family men of working and lower middle-class background from the city of Hamburg. Considered too old to be of use to the German army, they had been drafted instead into the order police. Most were raw recruits with no previous experience in German-occupied territory. They had arrived in Poland less than three weeks earlier. It was still quite dark as the men climbed into the waiting trucks. Each policeman had been given extra ammunition and additional boxes had been loaded onto the trucks as well. They were headed for their first major action, though the men had not yet been told what to expect. The convoy of battalion trucks moved out of Bilgoraj in the dark heading eastward on a jarring washboard gravel road. The pace was slow, and it took an hour and a half to two hours to arrive at the destination, the village of Josephau, a mere 30 kilometers away. Just as the sky was beginning to lighten, the convoy halted outside Josephau. It was a typical Polish village of modest white houses with thatched straw roofs. Among its inhabitants were 1,800 Jews. The village was totally quiet. The men of Reserve Battalion, Police Battalion 101, climbed down from their trucks and assembled in a half circle around their commander, Major Wil Wilhelm Trapp, a 53-year-old career policeman affectionately known by his men as Papa Trapp. The time had come for Trapp to address the men and inform them of the assignment the battalion had received. Pale and nervous, with choking voice and tears in his eyes, Trapp visibly fought to control himself as he spoke. The battalion, he said plaintively, had to perform a frightfully unpleasant task. This assignment was not to his liking. Indeed, it was highly regrettable, but the orders came from the highest authorities. If it would make their task any easier, the men should remember that in Germany, the bombs were falling on women and children. He then turned to the matter at hand. The Jews had instigated the American boycott that had damaged Germany. One policeman remembered Trapp saying there were Jews in the village of Josephau who were involved with the partisans. He explained to two others. The battalion had now been ordered to round up these Jews. The male Jews of working age were to be separated and taken to a work camp. The remaining Jews, the women, 
children and elderly were to be shot on the spot by the battalion. This is their first encounter. Having explained what awaited his men, Trapp then made an extraordinary offer. If any of the older men among them did not feel up to the tasks that lay before him, he could step out. They completed their task. Ordinary men. They at least killed 38,000 people. They would have parties in the evening to try to forget what they had done during the course of the day. Ordinary men were able to bring themselves to do this because of resentment that was in their hearts. Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto, speaking on the reality of evil after 40 years of examining the malevolence that we are all capable of. Um, if you don't know, the 20th century was by far the bloodiest century on record. Apart from the um, approximately 6 million Jews slaughtered um, during the World War II, it's estimated about 60 million um, persons died in, in Russia in the Gulag Archipelagos. Uh, and Mao, under Mao's regimes in China, another incredible number of millions of people would have died in their camps. Jordan, P Jordan Peterson, after he examining the malevolence that we are all capable of, he speaks of resentment and anger. And I'm paraphrasing him, right? If you're feeling resentment and anger, you need to do something about it or else. If someone is pushing you or abusing you because it's dangerous to say or do something, you generally stay quiet or probably like, um, like the Jews um, in, in Israel's time, um, you pay a tribute, but then the resentment builds up and that grows into a desire for revenge. You start role playing in your mind about the tables turning. It can consume you till it constantly occupies your mind. You start setting little traps and even doing a half-rate job as you serve people. Eventually this could build and you start to think thoughts like, you know what, existence itself is a poisonous endeavor, or it's survival of the fittest, or it's either me or them. And then you convince yourself that some sort of action needs to take place. That's why you see things like in America, these random mass shootings. People are harboring resentment fed by all kinds of half-truths and mistruths. If you have something to say, you better well say it. Now remember I'm paraphrasing him, right? Jordan Peterson. He says, you may think you are right, but most likely you are not. Say something stupid, because somebody else may have something to say that will improve your perspective. So you'll be a little less stupid. Go after the unknown. You already know what you know. Talk to people you don't agree with. Go after your enemies. It is possible they know a thing or two about what you don't know. You know, last Monday our family group in South were discussing the Jonah chapter 2 and people had different takes on Jonah's prayers. I didn't necessarily agree with them, but I enjoyed it. I love that we can have different viewpoints on something and I think that that makes me a better person. We can have a a, a rational, respectful conversation about where we're at, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and come into a better place because of the interaction that we're having. We all have our internal bias, but if we stay in a circle of like-minded people, or worse yet, by ourselves, we are more likely going to reinforce negative and even prejudicial thinking. 
Sometimes I think that's why God allowed for different races or different viewpoints in his kingdom. So we could be humble enough to challenge ourselves to not give in to the resentment and to pursue people different to ourselves in order for us to find him. So I, I have a, another point. Is, is prejudicial resentment justified part two? And we read from verse five to nine. In chapter 4, Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Same question again, right? About the plant. It is, he said, and I am so angry, I wish I were dead. So our boy Jonah, after a prayer filled with resentment, self-pity, and buffing God, goes outside the city and builds himself a shelter to watch the fireworks because he tell off God good and proper and maybe, just maybe, God will repent and bring the full fireworks of destruction on the repentant Ninevites. Well, apparently the shelter wasn't much of a shelter, so God in his usual kindness sent a leafy plant to help Jonah out and Jonah was very happy for the plant that God provided now notice that word provided right but by dawn the next day God provides a worm to eat the plant and by the time the Sun comes up God provides a scorching east wind Jonah is mad and angry again God asked him again is it right for you to be angry about the plant again God is questioning Jonah's anger we can be angry about evil oppression being perpetrated against us, but we can also be angry about the fallen nature of this world and the vulnerability we feel towards it. We like when things are good. The oil price high, revenues, jobs flow in. But when the resources dry up and we feel the effects of a world where things are so volatile, we get upset and resentful. Sometimes things are so hard, we wish like Jonah, that we could die. Jordan Peterson again, speaking on the finite nature of life in reference to an infinite God and using the biblical story of the fall, that was Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, the, the first children, says, and again I'm paraphrasing him, the issue of finitude is built into the nature of human existence. At the fall, when we as humans um, ate the fruit uh, against God's um, command, realized that we were naked and vulnerable, we re recognized that this vulnerability is part of the human condition. We decided to cover ourselves. When Cain and Abel both offered sacrifice, sacrifices, and one was pleasing to God and the other was not, Cain did not give off his best. Whereas Abel 
gave his best. It's not an easy thing to give your best in a finite world when we feel vulnerable. Even if we are giving our best to an infinite God whom we must now trust to meet our needs. But that is the beauty of exposing your vulnerability and trusting. It's then that God promises your weaknesses will become your strengths. That your inherent weakness in a finite world now not only becomes acceptable but desirable. If, however, you, the finite, choose to go it your own way, do it your own way, instead of God's way, like Jonah going in a completely opposite direction or getting upset when God um, turned away from his wrath and in view of the Ninevites' repentance, if you choose to go your own way instead of God's way, God, who is the infinite, right, you're turning away from him, like Cain, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to master you. His sin mastered him. He murdered his brother. His resentment got the better of him. And not only him, his descendants after him. Straight up to Tubal Cain. You know, anybody who murdered Cain, um, who, who, who did anything to Cain, um, did seven times they would be murdered. You know? Straight up to the flood, the entire earth was filled with violence. If you don't master your sinful nature by surrendering to God, you will find yourself angry, resentful, and even willing to go the way of Jonah, waiting to watch joyfully as 120,000 people and animals goes up in a ball of flames, not knowing or realizing that you are signing your own death warrant. How are you feeling now? during this period of COVID-19? Are you feeling resentment and anger? That's good that you actually know what you are feeling. Talk to someone. Maybe someone different to you, who might have a different perspective. Talk in a manner that promotes respect and genuine discussion. Not the gotcha statements like on social media that does nothing but promote the hate and animosity. Sit down with another human being and have a real dialogue. Be willing to put yourself in the other person's shoe and to admit, hey, most likely I may be wrong here about what I perceive is going on. Promote love, not hate. If life is tough and you know or at least suspect that it's not some grand conspiracy or someone intentionally trying to harm you, then admit to yourself that we live in a fallen world that is subject to death and decay. Choose to follow God. Choose to do good rather than evil. Because in the final examination, it's God's grace and mercy we're all looking for. He sees whether we are genuine, genuinely repentant, or if we're just playing games. It's foolish not to put our best into our repentance and drawing near to God. In conclusion, we look at verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, 
and also many animals. Are we as concerned for the loss of every nation as God is? Or are we angry and resentful against those, against those who are different to us? The challenges of life and God's continuous insistence that we go down a narrow path, that we be completely humble before Him. Right? His call for us to pursue others in the midst of our vulnerabilities, trusting Him that He will work it out all for our good. Are we willing to do that? Are we, are we going to choose that? The alternative is a, is a path to hell on earth. Both Nineveh and the ten northern tribes of Israel did not fully pursue their repentance, but continued their evil, their evil self-sufficient parts. Right? The Ninevites, their path of violence, and the Israelites, their path of apostasy before God. Both nations were eventually destroyed and utterly decimated. Choose your path wisely. The book of Jonah is a warning to us all. Amen, guys. Let's go before God in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, as we conclude the book of Jonah, we thank you for placing it in, in the Bible. We thank you, God, that um, your word challenges us to look at, at our prejudices or biases um, to really see you for who you are, God, and the goodness that you are trying to bring about, even though we do not fully understand it. I pray, Father, that um, you know you help us to work through those deep issues, um, those things that are hidden in our own hearts. Help us, Father, to continually repent, um, not just to make it a once-for-all event, but we're constantly humbling ourselves before you and giving of our best to you, God. Um, Father, I pray that in our relationship with others, especially with those different to us, Father, that we... We can put ourselves in, in, the, in other people's shoes. We can speak your truth, your word, but with respect and with love. And with a, as a, a humility that knows that we don't know it all, God, but that you would bring it all together. If it is we really have that truly repentant attitude. Please, Father, be with us all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.